0: I'm grateful uh, <clears throat> for Ron and for Scott and for Dennis. Uh, week after week, it uh, it is an encouragement to me to hear, uh, not just on Wednesday nights, but uh, but to to be privileged enough to uh, to be in a church where we have men and women of prayer. Uh, this is something that um, that comes through experience, and um, and I know it's it's because of the depth and maturity of faith, and I appreciate the men who help. Tonight, we are going to conclude the Westminster Confession, our our study of it, and we come to, therefore, chapter 33, which is on the last judgment. Let me uh, put the first paragraph up there, but before we get to the first paragraph, a few words of a summary i think it obviously would be difficult to imagine the confession ending on a more sober and sobering note than this confession from these three paragraphs i've put together a summary of a few bullet points that we're going to learn as we've looked through chapter 33 tonight number 1 we're going to see that there is an appointed moment in human history when God will send His Son, Jesus Christ, to judge apostate angels and, more importantly, every human who has ever lived on planet Earth. We're going to learn, secondly, that this judgment will include each person's appearing before the tribunal of Christ in order to give an account of every thought, every word, and every deed during his or her lifetime. That makes me want to run out the door, frankly, but uh, I'll continue. Third bullet point, we're going to learn that each person will then receive in the body the verdict For all these actions of thought and deed or lack thereof, again in his or her body, meaning in heaven or in hell. Fourthly, we're going to learn that this time of judgment will manifest the glory of God's mercy toward the elect, toward his children, and also his justice toward the reprobate, toward the unbeliever's. We're also going to learn, fifthly, that the righteous will then enter everlasting life in the fullness of joy that comes from being in the presence of Christ. And sixthly, that the reprobate will therefore enter an everlasting life of damnation due to their wickedness and disobedience. And finally, from these little three paragraphs... We're going to learn that Christ will have all people persuaded of this day of judgment, but that its timing will remain unknown, so that there should never be any false security related to the timing of this final judgment, and that the Christian may look forward to the knowledge of this time when he or she will forever be in the glorious presence of the Lord around the throne of grace in heaven. Now, those are significant bullet points that I have mentioned. <clears throat> so we will get back uh, now to paragraph one. The scripture texts that come with it. Paragraph one of chapter 33 of the last judgment reads like this. God has appointed a day wherein he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ to whom all power and judgment is given of the father. In which day, not only the apostate angels should be judged, but likewise all persons that have lived upon earth shall appear before the tribunal of Christ to give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds and to receive according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. And you see the scripture text that the confession always uh, uses to substantiate the uh, wording of the document itself. When you get to this first paragraph, you'll notice perhaps that the very first scripture text listed here is from Acts chapter 17. That's that's uh, significant in this case, verse 31, but you could go to uh, roughly half of that chapter of Acts 17 and you know that perhaps to be the encounter that Paul has with the unbelievers in the city of Athens, Greece. Here is the great Athens, uh, significantly contributory to uh, democracy and, and thoughts of that nature, even though we might want to quibble with the way they looked at it. Nonetheless, Athens at one point and Greece at one point was a great culture on the planet. When Paul encounters it, however, it's come down a bit. And in Acts chapter 17, verse 31 reads like this. It's beginning, uh, it's in the middle of a sentence rather. It says, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, what Paul is, is doing here... Uh, he has before him these Athenians, and you may recall from that passage, Paul has been walking through the streets of Athens, speaking to these Athenians. Uh, he's been talking about a variety of things, mainly the creator God, because it is clear to Paul that the Athenians are worshiping anything and everything that comes from the creation, not the creator that is always the case with all unbelief. It is in one way or another a means of worshiping the creation and not the creator. And Paul, uh, you recall, even noticed as they set up little uh, worship centers around Athens, they even dedicated one of them to the unknown God uh, just in case they had missed out, they had A pantheon of gods, false gods, which they worshipped. And just for good measure, they put one up to the god or gods or goddesses they may have overlooked. So they had one to the unknown god, and and Paul draws their attention to that. And toward the end of his speech to these folks in Athens, he reminds them, whether or not you're aware of it, whether or not you agree with it, you will be judged. And this is the sobering part of the message it doesn't it It's very similar to the folks who who thought, and maybe there are some who still think the world is flat. Well, you are free to think the world is flat. Uh, the truth is it's not, uh, but uh, you will one day find out perhaps in a difficult manner. well, the same thing is true only to uh, an exponential degree if you do not know the true and living God, the God that is expressed and and, uh, not only writes, but is found in Scripture, made known by his son, Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, then you are worshiping false gods of creation, whatever that may be. Even if you're an atheist, uh, the false god you are worshiping with with atheism is that you think you are God. And you don't need any other gods. You don't think there are any other gods. Perhaps you think this world ends with your death and uh, you simply cease to exist. You Again, you can think that. Many people do think that. But in point of fact, that is not the case. There is a God, this God that we know from Scripture, and he will judge every person that has ever lived. That's what Paul is getting at as he concludes in Acts 17. Uh, interestingly, you may recall the results of Paul's preaching to the folks in Athens. There were some who believed, there were some who wanted to stone him, and there were some who were just noncommittal. That, I would suggest, is the result every time there is any preaching that is, uh, that is done. The Holy Spirit is moving uh, to, uh, and, it's, and he moves in different ways. Here's the way Chad Van Dixhorn summarizes this first paragraph uh, and indeed the entire uh, chapter, but mostly chapter, paragraph one. Van Dixhorn says this, quote, the last chapter of the confession is an extended reflection on Paul's promise to the people of Athens long ago. The day of judgment emphasizes the certainty of the coming event. The world, as Paul alludes to it, emphasizes the scope of this coming day of judgment. And the, the uh, righteousness emphasizes the true goodness and justice of the judge himself, the judge himself that Paul alluded to there in verse 31, as him who was raised from the dead, that is Jesus Christ. So paragraph one, therefore, speaks emphatically to the fact and the scope of the final judgment, second coming, whatever you would wish to call it, of God, reminding all of mankind of the reality of it, the comprehensiveness of it, the inevitability of it, and the thoroughness of the judgment of every human being ever born. All of the scripture verses that are appended to this paragraph behind me are significant in unfolding all that I have said and that Van Dixhorn just said. Acts chapter 17, we've we've thought about. Here's what John chapter 5, verses 22 and 27 say this, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. What John is talking about there is the fact that, that Jesus, being faithful to the Father's instruction, has come to this earth incarnate, lived a life free of sinfulness, yet taken your sin and my sin upon himself and nailed it to that tree as the nails drove through his own flesh being willing to die so that you and I don't have to die for our sinfulness. The father rewarded the son with that great faithfulness by raising him from the dead, bringing him to heaven during his ascension, and then bringing the Holy Spirit down at Pentecost so that every Christian from that moment forward has the Holy Spirit. When you get to Jude, verse 6, interesting verse out of Jude, it says this, "...and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling," that is, those reprobate angels that followed Satan, "...he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day." So Jude is referencing there this, uh, this notion in the confession that, that uh, speaks of apostate angels, that will also be judged. 2 Peter chapter 2. They allude to verse 4, but it needs a little bit more than that. I'm going to read 2 Peter chapter 2 verses 4 through 9. Reads this way, "'For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, "'but cast them into hell,' And committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserve Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Again, that's Second Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. 2 Corinthians 5.10. In 2 Corinthians, uh, every, every one of these uh, passages, uh, and I know you know this, but when you come through, when you come to Scripture, you, you can think of concentric circles. And the concentric rings form greater and greater context. For any passage of Scripture, you agree. Uh, the greatest and egregious error that comes most of the time from people Uh, who abuse scripture comes from someone taking either one verse or a part of a verse, even one word from a verse, and running off with uh, what may or may not be meaningful about that without stopping to see the greater context. And what I mean by that here, when you see just the fact that we're going to read a verse from the book of 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians is a very particular book, very, very different from 1 Corinthians. Another letter that Paul writes to this church in Corinth that is, that is more of the heart. 1 Corinthians, everyone loves 1 Corinthians because they like to duke out all the problems, uh, speaking in tongues, uh, healings, all of those kinds of things. When you get to 2 Corinthians, you see this man, Paul, this, uh, this great apostle, uh, burdened by his own sinfulness, burdened by this thorn in the flesh, and that, that gives a, a tent to everything that you find in the book of 2 Corinthians. But here is what uh, the men of the confession uh, wanted to put here. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Ecclesiastes, going back to the Old Testament, chapter 12, verse 14 is the penultimate verse in that entire book. Next to last verse says this, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Not surprisingly from early Romans, Romans chapter two, verse 16. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. From the, toward the end of the book, Romans 14, 10, and 12 say this, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Matthew chapter 12, verses 36 and 37 I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Those are the texts, and you see they've come from Old Testament, from New Testament, and they could be amplified many, many times over. In other words, the last judgment is not a figment of anyone's imagination. This is a solid biblical teaching. No one in Scripture talked more about hell than Jesus Christ. I run into people fairly often who say, well, yeah, that, that hell and the law and all those things, that's Old Testament. But when you get to the New Testament, it's Jesus and it's love. Nothing could be a more warped perspective on Scripture than that perspective. It was Jesus who kept bringing the notion of hell before the people. Here's what Van Dixhorn summarizes this. He says, reflecting on the coming judgment, it is necessary for each of us to ponder our present way of life. Uh, That's one of the, uh, if you wanted to call it an application of chapter 33 of the confession, certainly that is one of them. When you read what we have read already, it is certainly incumbent upon us, necessary, as Van Dixhorn says, for each of us to ponder our present way of life. On that day, we will find no reason to be proud of ourselves before the judgment seat of God, nor will we find reason to fear if we stand in the righteousness of of Christ our Savior. We're going to unpack that a little further. Paragraph two, paragraph two reads like this, the end of God's appointing this day, that is the purpose for God appointing a day of judgment is for the manifestation of his glory, of the glory of his mercy in the eternal salvation of the elect and of his justice in the damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient. For then shall the righteous go into everlasting life and receive that fullness of joy and refreshing which shall come from the presence of the Lord. But the wicked who know not God and obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ shall be cast into eternal torments and be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Paragraph two is... Is alluding to the fact that this final judgment and judgment of sin in general uh, is a way to amplify both the mercy of God and the judgment of God, the justice of God. That's what prevents uh, people from assuming that that God will just. Turn a deaf ear. God does not turn a deaf ear to any sin that you commit or I commit or anyone else commits. That sin must be punished. And the punishment for any sin, trivial to dramatic, is death, eternal death, eternal damnation. That's why, uh, as Van Dixhorn alluded, and as, as the confession here is, is describing, nobody ought to be walking and, and going toward the final judgment gleefully because we are all guilty the beauty to the christian is that when you put your faith in jesus christ his death covers your sin and my sin it's uh, you hear it all the time and it's the reason it's a popular saying is because it's so accurate when you get to heaven if god should ask you why should i let you into my heaven the answer you want to give is not related to anything that you have done or said or wished you had done or said. There's only one answer. Why God would ever let a sinner such as you and me into his heaven. And that's because our faith is in Jesus Christ and I claim the blood of the covenant which covers my sin forever and your sin forever. That is pure mercy. That's why you don't ever go to God and ask for his justice. If he gives you his justice, you won't be here long because we deserve something bad. But for the believer, God has sent his own son into this world to die on a cross to take your sin and mine and leave it there forever. Your past sins, your present sins, your future sins. And that is why it is pure mercy and grace that the believer enjoys. The unbeliever who refuses that mercy, who refuses that grace, is therefore going to reveal the justice of God for those refusals. So paragraph two gets into the purpose, the the meaning behind this this notion of of judgment. We're going to flesh it out a little bit um, a little bit more also. You see the scripture passages there, a little bit uh, fewer of them, but uh, nonetheless all very important. Interesting that the interest of the day of judgment may be upon the sum of humans who will each appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The focus and the purpose of the judgment again relative to the second paragraph is for the glory of God. Both his mercy and his justice will bring glory to God. Uh, There are so many passages of scripture that would illustrate the negative side of that. I think about Psalm 73. You remember in Psalm 73, there's a man who is is trying to live uh, a godly life, but all around him he sees ungodly people who appear to be victorious. Good things, they appear to happen. They, they accumulate wealth. Uh, all these things go well with them. Sometimes we even imagine that they don't ever suffer ill health or any of those sorts of things. Yet the folks who are struggling are out there trying to to be uh, Christians seem to be the ones uh, that uh, maybe not so good things happen. And that man struggles with that all the way through the 73rd Psalm until he says, Until I went into the sanctuary of the Lord, then I got it. Then I understood what was going on. Then I understood what was behind what I'm seeing uh, or appear to be seeing. Uh, There is a time when all of this is going to be judged. That is a great comfort, frankly, in the times in which you and I live today. Because to me, the 73rd Psalm and so many passages out of the New Testament uh, underscore all that we are seeing. Why do people who do bad things seem never to be held accountable for them? They are going to be held accountable in the worst conceivable moment and the worst conceivable outcome. So I need not be angry at them. I need not be vindictive toward them, thinking, boy, I can't wait. Uh, no, no. My response to that is to go take the gospel to them so they will ha- again have an opportunity to understand how they can get out of this way of living they are in. This gospel revealed both by God's mercy toward the elect as well as the justice toward the reprobate because of the horrific indications which Scripture speaks from beginning to end regarding the final judgment and the end of the unrepentant sinner. A renewed sense of urgency should be an ever-present aspect of any conversation a Christian has with an unbeliever. It's so easy, as, as you know, especially within our own families, perhaps, uh, to, to back away from having the conversation about Jesus, to back away from the truth of the gospel and what is at stake in it. But precisely because we literally do not know what the next hour will bring in any of our lives, there must always be an urgency toward evangelism, toward toward reaching out with the gospel. Uh, I remember recently saying this, uh, not we, we don't take the gospel and beat people with it. We take the gospel and love people with it, even when they are unlovely people, because perhaps... We've lived long enough to remember when we were not so lovely. So this is um, not just the purpose of it, but also what is uh, to be the response of it. Now, one of the passages, uh, the first passage under this second paragraph is a very important text. Uh, I'm going to read this whole thing. It comes from the 25th chapter of Matthew, and it's verses 31-31 Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. It's a very dramatic text, but I think a very wonderful description, very thorough from Jesus saying, when we minister... When we reach out, and this, isn't, this doesn't imply going to seminary and all of that kind of stuff. This is just seeing somebody who has a need. Someone whose arms are full and they simply can't go through a door. Uh, someone who, all the way up to people who are indeed in hospitals or in death positions, ministering to them, praying with them. Uh, Oftentimes, the best way to minister to someone in that kind of scenario is to say nothing at all. Your physical presence is underscoring your love for that person, just holding their hand when they need to know that somebody is there with them. All of these things, according to Jesus, are ways for us to minister to him directly. It's interesting if you were following closely in that text that that both the sheep and the goats express surprise. They don't understand King Jesus' pronouncement of blessing on the sheep and the curses on the goats. However, the primary focal focal point of judgment day remains on the Lord. That is the thing to get uh, preeminently from that Matthew passage. Uh, The focus isn't on what happens to the sheep, what happens to the ghost. The focus remains on the Lord and how he is served or how we fail to serve him. Now, on the day, the final verdict toward the redeemed as well as the unredeemed will be declared and acted upon. This day we call the final judgment. While any specific insights into the details of this event from Scripture must be done carefully with humility, acknowledging the lack of detail certainty related in the text under each paragraph. Nonetheless, some things about this final day are clear. One of the people, uh, that, uh, one of the theologians, great theologians of the Reformed faith, a man named Herman Bovink, uh, he has a four-volume uh, set of, of Reformed dogmatics and someone, thankfully, has taken those four volumes and taken all of the writings that are contained, with, scattered throughout those four, and put them into one book that had to do with the last things. And that's the title of the book, The Last Things. Uh, quotations from Bob Inc. In the book, Bob Inc. addresses this dichotomy about this eternal destiny of the sheep and the goats. Here are a few of the reminders that he mentions, all of them. Uh, immensely backed up with scripture. He says, the sheep are going to inherit eternal salvation. What are some of the bullet points of eternal salvation? A united body and soul with the imperishable nature, eternal life, belonging to the age to come, indestructible, the gift of salvation, total redemption, the inheritance of eternal life, the glory of heaven being in the presence of the triune God, the kingdom, and of course, heaven itself. The flip side of this, the goats in eternal punishment will also have a united body and soul with an imperishable nature. They, however, will inherit eternal death. Those two words aren't often placed together, but that's the whole essence of judgment here. It will be Eternal, It will never end, but it is eternally dead. They will, too, belong to the age to come. They will, too, be indestructible. This will not end, but they will be in the agony of an unquenchable fire with a worm that gnaws and does never die and the smoke and torment that goes up forever, leading to corruption, ruin, destruction, and rather than heaven, It's a place called hell. Paragraph three, final paragraph of this 33rd chapter. Interesting uh, paragraph. It, It reads this way As Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment, both to deter all men from sin and for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity. So will he have that day unknown to men that they may shake off all carnal security and be always watchful because they know not at what hour the Lord will come and may be ever prepared to say, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. This is the way it, the confession concludes. And you see the, again, the passages here. There are at least six very important assertions made about the final day of the Lord in this third paragraph. Here's the first one that such a day, such an event is a certainty. There have been movies, books, uh, opinions uh, made uh, uh, in, from many, many people all through the course of human history. But here is what Scripture says such a day of final judgment is a certainty. Secondly, this knowledge should deter us from sin. One day, we are going to have to face Jesus himself with the words and the actions of our bodies, our minds, and our hearts. Therefore, this knowledge should deter us from our sinfulness. Thirdly, this knowledge should give the believer hope. In the midst of adversity, pain, and suffering. That's a similar illusion, as I mentioned in in Psalm 78, or 73, rather. Uh, In the midst of the pain, in the midst of the suffering, uh, Brenda Cumbus recently, uh, as I was sitting there in her hospital room, with total lucidity, total clarity of thought, and complete determination and openness of heart, she said, I want to be with my Savior. In the midst of the pain, in the midst of whatever was shutting down, those were her thoughts. It should give the believer hope in the midst of adversity and pain and suffering. Here's a fourth point from the third paragraph The timing of this event is unknown, only God the Father knows it. You may recall that uh, passage in Matthew 24. The disciples ask Jesus himself, when are you coming back? And he says, I, I don't know. Only the father knows. Fifth point, therefore, we must shake off all false sense of human security and carelessness. There are many, many people who assume, especially on the younger side, uh, thats that become very relative the older you get, uh, so I would think anything under about 110 at this point. But uh, at any rate, there's, a, there's an assumption when you're 20, 30, 40, this thing is going to go on for decades more. So I'll worry about that later. I'll address that sin later. I'm just having too much fun right now. And I know what the scriptures say. I know what the gospel teaches. So I'll get around to Jesus later. Uh, that is a fool's thought. And that is why, among other things, that that the date of this is unknown, because you don't know. It could be tonight. No one knows. And finally, sixthly, because this event precludes any further opportunity to repent, we must remain urgent in our missionary and outreach efforts. Those close at hand, meaning, first of all, my own heart, as well as those Across the earth, whether they be church plants in Knoxville, Tennessee, whether they be in Hungary, whether they be in China, uh, wherever they may be, the urgency to get the gospel to all the people on planet Earth remains the top of the list. I want to conclude with something that um, that I debated about because of its stridency, as if what we've seen already hasn't been strident enough. But there was a wonderful Puritan theologian named Thomas Boston. Uh, Thomas Boston, I think I remember reading that he, he ministered to a little bitty church for 47 years and never missed one single Sunday in the pulpit. Uh, but this man wrote a lot of, he didn't write a lot, Of good books, but the books he wrote were very, very good and they're unusually readable and insightful. All of the Puritan theologians, of course, are a significant part of of the Reformed heritage, but Thomas Boston wrote uh, several. One in particular is called Man's Fourfold State. Uh, Boston, by the way, lived from 1676 to 1732, so this is a man uh, who's uh, been dead almost 300 years but his books are still available. Uh, Man's Fourfold State. Sometimes the name of the, the book is Human Nature in its Fourfold State. That's probably the more accurate title. The fourfold state that Boston covers in his book are, number one, the state of innocence. That is the existence of Adam and Eve before sin comes into the world. Number two, the state of nature. Number three, the state of grace. And number four, the eternal state. Now, I'm just going to give you some uh, snippets of Boston's statements from that fourth and final part, the eternal state. In the eternal state, he lists six different portions or parts to it. The last, the sixth of the six, is entitled of hell. He brings four main points in this part six of the eternal state. I'm only going to summarize one of those four he calls it the misery of the damned. The first item, he goes, he goes, he covers it in two items. Number one is the punishment of loss. That is what I will lose by being an unbeliever. The second one is going to be the punishment of sense, S-E-N-S-E, what I will sense, what I will feel from this. So the punishment of loss, he says, number one, God is the chief good, therefore to be separated from him must be the chief evil. Now that, when you, when you read that and you read it quickly, it doesn't seem like it would be very significant, but think about it a minute. We're living in a world where, where so-called common grace is a great benefit to all mankind, even among unbelievers. They are never as evil as they could be. In hell, there's going to be no common grace. There's going to be no God. Evil is going to be completely unleashed, and you are caught up in that for an eternity. Here's the second point. God is the fountain of all goodness. Therefore, all comfort and comfortable communication between God and the damned is completely blocked. So there's no way to pray. There's, There's no way to get out of this. Number three, the soul desires to be happy and can never be happy except by enjoying God. Therefore, the soul will never know happiness in hell. Number four, the damned shall know that some are eternally happy in the perfect enjoyment of God, but they will know that they are eternally separated from such happiness. Luke chapter 16, you remember that little vignette between a man named Abraham and a man named Lazarus, where Lazarus, is suffering in hell, and he sees his friend Abraham, and he says, just, can you just stick your finger in some water and touch my tongue with it? And Abraham says, nope, sorry, can't do it, no communication. And then he says, well, at the very least, then go tell my brothers who are still living not to make the mistake, the eternal mistake that I have made. Luke chapter 16, read verses 19 to 31. Uh, Fifthly, the damned will remember that there was a time when they might have been made partakers of the blessed company of the saints. That might be the worst of all. Imagine when it dawns on you fully the damnation that you are in, thinking back to those times that you met someone on the sidewalk or you went to a church service or you had a parent who told you You should do this, that, or the other, or a friend, or whatever it might be. You picked up Scripture and read something, and it didn't fit well, and you thought, maybe I'll get back to it later. Finally, he says, the damned will understand that this loss is irrecoverable, never to be changed. They will know that they ignored the worth of redemption when it was offered and that they gave it up for worthless earthly illusions. That's a reference... uh, Again, back to Acts 17, when Paul tells the Athenians, you're you're worshiping all of these pieces of stone. Think about the the wonderful, poignant verses from Isaiah, uh, from Jeremiah, from Ezekiel, about uh, the foolishness of worshiping anything that we create. Now, the second thing Boston does, he goes into the punishment of the senses. What will be my sensual experience Departing from the Lord into everlasting fire. He says, number one, sin reaches its height in hell. So the evil of sin's punishment also reaches its height in hell. Number two, these torments include hellfire itself, the knowledge that they are ever dying but never dead, the sense of the worm that gnaws but never dies, the sense of a bottomless pit in everlasting night. Number three, he says, every part of the damned will be tormented by these punishments and finally number 4 these punishments are manifold and total in their evil uninterrupted in their vehemence and eternal in their duration and all the while the damned will be unpitied that's what cha- what uh, chapter 33 of the confession talks about when it talks about this last judgment All of those awful, awful things that I just read from from Thomas Boston are reversed if you come to the Lord Jesus Christ in humble faith and obedience. All of the passages throughout Scripture, but in particular in the epistles of Paul that we've looked at in here before about union with Christ, in Jesus Christ Christ, I have not just hope, I have certainty. I not only have my Savior every single moment of every single day that I live on this earth, but I will have him and indeed communicate in front of him for eternity. If I simply and humbly reach out in faith and say, I believe, help my unbelief. Got another passage, but I'm not going to read it. I just want to end with this John chapter 10, verse 9. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So if we come in faith of Jesus Christ as he is offered in his word, We can reverse every one of those miseries, every one of those things that we would, are just so unspeakable, we want, we're repulsed by hearing them. Every one of that is completely reversed in heaven for all eternity simply by coming in faith to Jesus Christ. I conclude with one verse, Romans 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is uh, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our Father, we do uh, read about this particular issue and we are, we are sobered by it. We are humbled by it. We are stunned by it. Perhaps we are even frightened by it because we know ourselves to be sinners. Make it, Father, send us fleeing to your son, Jesus Christ, and clutch hold in faith to our Savior who will never leave us or forsake us. Father, it doesn't mean we've got to live perfect lives. We will never do that. We're sinful people. But I do pray, Father, that our sinful trajectory will at least diminish over time as you mature us in our faith. And we will see one thing that indeed we are a worse sinner than we thought we ever were. But you, Father, have given us a Savior that is so much better than anything we ever thought possible. Father, send us to Jesus Christ this night. If there's anyone here sitting here listening to this that has the least bit of doubt. Father, I pray that that person will flee to your son right now and open his or her heart to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. And I pray these things in his name. Amen.